0: This is day two of the Isolation Pod. I'm Mark Carrigan.
1: I'm Jana Bajtujic.
0: And following our last discussion, we thought we'd talk this evening about the difference between theorising in a crisis and theorising about a crisis, something which draws together a lot of the things we're interested in, and particularly our common reactions to the intellectual questions posed both by COVID-19 and also the patterning of the intellectual response to it. And... I spent a lot of time in the last couple of days thinking about a Twitter thread by a professor in Toronto that you sent to me when the crisis was first unfolding. It was something that I found incredibly useful at the time for making sense of the dawning realisation that actually things weren't going to go back to normal and the lucidity of her analysis left me aware of that disposition within me, that sense of desperately wanting things to return to normal, and the kind of cognitive occlusions and biases that can stem from that sense of wanting to grasp on to any sense that things could be put back in their box. And it helped me come to terms with the fact that this is something that will be with us as a crisis for many, many months, and that when we are out of this, leaving aside the vexed question of who we are in that sentence, The world is going to be very different. And this thread, which we'll talk more about and the article ensuing from it in the Chronicle of Higher Education, was about adapting to this new normal. And it helped me feel okay about the fact that for the first couple of weeks, I was feeling intellectually dead. I had this sense of I should be responding productively to this, constructively. I should be making sense of it. And actually, the kind of creative association, which usually feels like it comes quite naturally to me, I just was not having ideas. And the fact I felt I should be having ideas was quite stark in my mind and my response to events. And would you like to say your sense of that thread and particularly the chronicle piece that we've been discussing?
1: Yeah, so one of the reasons why both the thread and the the article in the Chronicle of Higher Education stuck with me was because I think it captured very well the feeling of being caught out, as it were, in the middle of a storm, although obviously it's a it's a socio-political storm, uh, not necessarily a weather weather-based one. And uh, the the person in question is Aisha Ahmad, uh, who is a an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and um, recently she wrote up the Twitter thread that you were you were referring to as a longer piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education, whose title is "Why You Should Ignore All That Coronavirus Inspired producti- Productivity Pressure," and with, to me it um, it rang a bell because I think it dealt very well with the two dominant framings of reactions, including scholarly reactions to the crisis. One of which was, oh, this is a great opportunity to write up all of those articles. Uh, And the other, which was, this is a crisis, don't do anything. And as someone who has found herself in between those two two positions, uh, the article itself was, was very useful for me.
0: And, uh, you, you know, I think on some level, we both have some degree of sympathy, although, forgive me if I'm talking inaccurately about your view, for the idea of doing nothing, at least on a political level. But one of the key things about recognising that in theorising about crisis, we're all always, at least in this case, theorizing in crisis as well, is the sense in which if you are prone to, trained in, and dependent upon offering theoretical accounts of what is taking place, then your sense making is going to be imbued with theoretical concepts. You can't get away from that. And then we enter into a second order set of questions about which theoretical concepts you use, how you put them together, what work that does in terms of your personal sense of making and perhaps crucially if you're going through this in a public forum in a way that's tied to your profession are you helping us move forward in our understanding at all?
1: And I think it goes back to what we were discussing last time which is the question of you know the coronavirus and the philosopher philosophers Agamben at, uh, et al uh, the whole bunch who immediately jumped on board of offering almost as if ready-made interpretations of the coronavirus crisis. What is that good for? What what purpose does it serve? And again, to me, crucially, where does that position come from? So why is it that some of us feel compelled to do that? What are the socio-cultural and political um, elements that enable some of us to do that but also prevent some others from doing that uh, or give more of a platform to to one type of reading and perhaps less or not a platform at all to to others uh, and again what does this mean so what does it mean on a personal level what does it mean on a biographical level And one of the things I particularly liked about um, Ahmad's article in the Chronicle of Higher Education is because she doesn't necessarily implore the reader to um, not do anything or not write anything or not theorize anything uh, during the crisis, but rather to use the crisis as the impetus for thinking about how to engage with scholarly work. So how to go about being an academic, or to put it more broadly, how to go about being a thinking being. And this relationship between biographies and um, intellectual orientations is also something you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about, if I'm correct.
0: This sounds like an invitation for me to offer my hot take of this particular issue
1: maybe a bit of a cooler take, because you did spend a lot of time thinking about this way before coronavirus became a thing. So it's more of a, well, how does this look from your perspective, from the perspective of someone who has been particularly interested in the relationship between the biographical and the uh, academic uh, for a longer time?
0: Well, I'm trying to dip my toe into the water of writing a little bit now that I've started to feel a sense of, normality for now a provisional contingent normality about how we're relating to digital scholarship um, and particularly the change that has come about where you go back 10 years and digital scholarship was projected as a transformation that was coming Mm -hmm. and most people involved in that literature i imagine would have conceived of this change as being a gradual shift in norms and practice as opposed to something that has now been imposed on all of us as a short, sharp shock, as a consequence of working from home. And I think those periods of change in our practice, enforced by external circumstances, give a real opportunity for reflexivity about what it is we were doing and why we were doing it. And I think this is really important for how we use social media as I make clear in my social media for academics, COVID hot take coming soon. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a deeper underlying issue about reflexivity concerning what we're doing when we're theorizing. I mean, this is something we began talking about quite some time ago when we organized the first Cambridge practice of social theory workshop. How do we create a space in which people can reflect in a formative way about what it is to do theory as opposed to what it is to deploy theoretical concepts and texts.
1: And it has been something that's influenced uh, my own, or permeated my own thinking uh, quite substantively, I think, even before that, but also certainly certainly after that, in the sense in which I think there's still a lack of consideration about what does it mean to actually do theory. Uh, there's obviously been um, this special issue of, if I'm not mistaken, the British Journal of Sociology, that engaged, and so Monica Krause and Richard Swadeberg, and uh, quite a few other people had um, written contributions about what does it mean to theorise as opposed to just no theory, but I think that question becomes asked in perhaps not entirely different but certainly a more urgent manner when it comes to contexts where once. Theories or one's work of theorizing and the immediate socio political life or experience uh, start overlapping.
0: Because there's a clear psychological sense in which profound rupture offers an opportunity to simply write about things that we've already rehearsed and developed. And I'd be wary as a suspect you would of overplaying this point but nonetheless the sense in which actually writing as a productive immersive activity something that for people who are practiced at it often involves a flow state can be a defense against anxiety in these times it gives you a lodestone you can return to and the question is what thought is going into that writing to what extent is it the generation of new reflections on what's happening or is it just the reiteration of ideas in relation to a new case?
1: But also I'd warn against, and I think I, I wasn't suggesting that this is what you're doing, but uh, I'm guessing it can be read as that. Um, I, I'd warn against this dichotomous portrayal because I think sometimes, as suggested by, by Mike Savage's concept of epical theorising, we do... We take a very critical view towards generating new theories, I think for good reasons. So sometimes there is really something to be said about interpretations that just try to fold whatever is going on onto an existing theoretical or interpretative framework. But, on the other hand, I think there is obviously the, the inverse risk of that just becoming a way of saying, "Oh, yes, of course, of course, state of exception, right? Of course, of course, bare life, uh, of course, of course, foucault, surveillance, whatever, biopolitics, uh, you name it. so um, and in my own work, I've also been quite quite sensitive to how these things play out and also how they tend to close uh, or foreclose some possible other uh, venues or avenues for thinking?
0: Well, is it useful to think about what it is we're doing when we think theoretically or perhaps rather think abstractly? Um, when confronting that question, I often think back to an observation I saw uh, Jamie Morgan make. It's a very simple one, but that abstraction is always abstracting from something. And it's an observation that comes to mind when I encounter theoretical work that doesn't seem to hook into the world in any obvious way. It's not clear it's clearly abstract as an adjective, but the kind of embodied contextualised activity of abstracting from something is seemingly missing, and it's a point I guess andrew sayer um in a very different way made uh quite some time ago now. And I think it's interesting to think about that in relation to crisis because when we are reasoning abstractly about crisis we are stepping back from it and this compulsive writing, compulsive reiteration of an existing body of ideas in relation to the crisis is actually stepping in to it.
1: I think that's absolutely true and I think that's also something uh, I have argued in relation to for instance neoliberalism that depicting something, the lived experience of contemporary capitalism, the lived experience of suffering in contemporary capitalism under a particular diagnostic term, in some cases neoliberalism, but there are obviously uh, other, other diagnoses applied to it, and it can work for the corona crisis as well. Is a way of objectifying one's own experience that allows this element of stepping away. And I'm, I'm always reminded in this case of, of Arendt's work on theorizing. So, so the, the, the idea that theorizing requires a stance that's, in a manner of speaking, separated from the world. And I think that in some cases, such as this one in, in particular, living through crisis can create the sense of not being able as much or as well or as easily to step away from the world to the degree to which one might have been accustomed to.
0: And, you know, there's a risk, I think, when we talk in these terms that we valorize a slightly traditional stereotype of scholarship as something above and beyond society. And I'm really not saying that and I'm certain you're not saying that neither am I um but uh, because we can make this a more empirically rich and more concrete account of what people are actually doing and think about the routines of everyday life and again this comes back to the point that crisis generically lockdown in particular is a magnifying glass that draws our attention to habits and routines that we might not have been aware of, as well as necessitating that we develop new habits and new routines to cope with what might otherwise feel like a formless void stretching on ahead of us for months.
1: I agree. And in that sense, uh, another post that I found very refreshing uh, among the the deluge of hot takes on the COVID-19 crisis that's come out recently is... Um, on writing theory during a pandemic by Jean Florencio that was published in Identities, or Identitetti, uh, recently. And he writes about exactly this work of theorising within a pandemic that for some people is just, in a manner of speaking, is also part of their daily job. And that was one of the ambiguities that struck me when the crisis first started unfolding, because on the one hand, going back to the, um, to the ambiguity you hinted at at the very beginning. On the one hand, I felt guilty because I did feel compelled to write. Uh, on the other hand, I couldn't really come to terms with, uh, uh, on the other hand, I didn't think I should feel guilty because the relationship between crisis prediction and knowledge production is exactly one of the things that my work is about. So in that sense, what was unfolding in front of my very eyes is precisely what I'm interested in empirically. Stepping away from it felt like, would have felt like a betrayal of my own, you know, calling, vocation for me.
0: But that can be a really toxic double bind, right? But also quite a fascinating one where you feel guilty, as it were, about feeling guilty. And how can that do anything other than entrench the guilt?
1: And I think it hints very well or repeats this notion of ambiguity of anything for that matter, because what we've also seen, you know, for instance, in the case of neoliberalism, it's the same sort of double bind that people experience when they criticise the, say, productivity pressures within academia, and then criticise them in publications that also count as academic production, right? So... So this, this type of, of um, as it were, performative contradiction of, and I think capitalism in itself, other people have argued this as well, generates these contradictions constantly. And it's very interesting to observe how they play out in a crisis like this.
0: Well, I mean, I felt very different with differently in relation to the different parts of my work. So with my theoretical hat on, as someone who writes about subjectivity and social change I felt less guilty in a way uh, because I don't think that work is useful in any meaningful sense and we can interrogate what we mean by usefulness but as someone who writes about practical reasoning and digital platforms actually I felt I do have useful things to say about how we as scholars adapt to this sudden sharp immersion in digital scholarship and that sense of feeling I ought to be saying stuff, but nothing is coming to mind, was quite a sharp internal contradiction.
1: Did you really not have immediate reactions to what was going on? Because I remember thinking, among other things, in the manner of speaking, I, I won't say I was feeling envious, but one of the things that did occur to me was, well, in the manner of speaking, this crisis is from a scholarly perspective, it's a real godsend for not only for people like me who work on, on epistemologies and you know, prediction and ignorance, but also for people like you who work particularly on the intersection between the digi- digital and the scholarly.
0: But now we're positioning ourselves in relation to the crisis in terms of an epistemic game. And we are once more falling into exactly the trap that we set out not to do, which I think is an interesting Uh, portrayal of how hard it is to avoid and I mean I I think to be honest you like this piece more than I did.
1: You mean Jarl's piece? uh, Yes exactly
0: uh, for a number of reasons possibly because I'm a bit preoccupied at the moment by differing conceptions of theory and theorizing in the humanities and social sciences and what I see as the kind of avant-garde tendency in humanities theorizing is starting to frustrate me. But I did think there was one incredibly important point in the piece, which was about critical scholarship and critical activism in relation to uh, AIDS and the way in which an intensely heteronormative and hugely problematic initial response was formulating as common sense. And the joint conjuncture of critical scholarship and critical activism helped push this away. It required work in the world, it required theory as method, theoretically informed practice. I'm refusing to say praxis, (laughs) but it was substantively theoretical and it did bring about an outcome in the world. And if we think back to the kind of debates about herd immunity and the seeming nonchalance of the UK government in its early stages, there is a comparable case to be made not theorising in the sense in which we would recognise it in the humanities and social sciences, but alternative theoretical treatments of the problem have played a role in pushing the government in a slightly less destructive direction.
1: Or just in pushing the government towards hiding the destructive dimension um, or concealing it a bit better, which is still the thing that plagues me as a question. So whether, whether the herd immunity strategy, this is a slightly reductive framing. I, I think it's not only that, but w- whether the behavioural intervention strategy is something that really played such a minor role as uh, as the government's uh, officials are now inclined to claim, uh, or whether that's still, in the manner of speaking, what's being, to, to a degree, played out. But um, I do agree, especially after... Uh, Prime Minister himself seems to have finally realised that there is such a thing as society explicitly contradicting uh, one of his rather famed predecessors. So in that sense, I I do think that there is a growing realisation that uh, the public needs to be included in ways that recognise that the public is not not just a sort of uh, a passive recipient of uh, different forms of social engineering, That being said, I am not certain that that means that there is any move towards more transparency uh, in the, well, in the approach, in the handling of the crisis itself.
0: But it does indicate, I think, an interesting sense in which under these uh, conditions, public concepts are, in a manner of speaking, up for grabs in a way they wouldn't otherwise be.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that certainly goes for critique, that goes for theory, that goes for all, you know, all manners of of concepts. And um, for me, the interesting thing is to see that that actually, that matters still in any sort of way, because that's one of the things that I didn't expect to see as someone who's lived through multiple or at least one big crisis of, I guess, comparable scale before, Uh, I didn't expect that there would be uh, so much of discussion in the public sphere about the meaning of different things. And um, I'm actually, I'm quite curious about this. Maybe it's a, maybe it's an echo chamber thing.
0: But I I think in part, it's about the level of mediatization. Um, And I think this is what's so startling about our contemporary situation, because this is happening while we are more connected than ever. And... This is why I find myself increasingly obsessing. I mean, from very early on, the first theoretical and only theoretical thought I had for the first two weeks of this was about the infrastructure Mm. and recognising in myself that feeling of thank God we have the internet, thank God we have social media, but also understanding that connectivity is not an infinite resource. It's contingent that the way in which we relate to connectivity at the level of practice tends to assume it is. And I've been fascinated by the, the politics of this playing out at a kind of supranational level in terms of you know uh, video streaming services downgrading the quality of their video. And I think this is going to become more and more pronounced as we go on in this crisis. And a story that I've been obsessing about since uh well since yesterday, and the fact that I'm saying since yesterday, oh. as if that was some time ago, speaks volumes about chronic temporalities, is the 5G conspiracy theories and how there are acts of vandalism going on against 5G masts that are also inadvertently targeting uh broadband connectivity units, I should think of what the proper name for them. Masks? Uh, no, not masts. The, the boxes on the street. Oh, okay. You know There's, there's green boxes. Yeah. There is a technical term for this, and I wish I could have thought of it before going on this digression. Um, and I think there's a real risk if this continues, that this is a particularly uh, strange threat to the infrastructure, but there are other threats to the infrastructure as well. And what happens... To us, if the connectivity vanishes, how will people respond to that?
1: I think that's a very good point. Um, Surviving Society did a minicast, if I'm not mistaken, on exactly the five G five G conspiracy theories. Um, recently, I hadn't had time to listen to it yet, but I I, I really look forward to it. Uh, but I think you're. I think that's a very good point. I think the degree to which people take that sort of infrastructure for granted uh is is an interesting question especially if that structure starts to you know even slightly fail so even even occasionally fail i think the same goes for things like electricity right Uh, or power supply
0: but the roundabout point that i was making is that implicit in the way you're characterizing the response to this crisis is the presence of connectivity and so insofar as that someone like me who unlike you has never lived through a crisis of this scale so it's very much a learning experience i'm starting to feel there's a kind of contingent normality Mm. that i expect will last for six to 18 months before we move into a new phase but if interrupted connectivity suddenly becomes a recurrent part of life then actually that normality will fade away very quickly and the possibility we will have crisis within crisis within crisis. I don't know where I'm going with this, and I'm getting very depressed listening to myself.
1: I think what's more likely to happen, and I think this is probably something we should explore in more detail, including how to theorise about it, and what also theorising about it cannot do, is that people will get gradually adjusted to... um, gradual disappearance of things that they were used to. I mean, this is the the sort of the parable of of boiling a frog, right? So in that sense, I think for me, the very interesting thing is, and one of the main ways in which I see my responsibility as a scholar is to witness, is to observe, is, is to notice when things are disappearing slowly. So for instance, when connectivity goes from being, it's a stupid example, but goes from being a default to being something that's achieved, right? So like today we have a good signal, but tomorrow maybe we will not have a good signal and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of times when people think about crisis, they think about crisis in binary terms. So either everything is brilliant and then disaster hits and then everything is awful. But I think the reality is that much more often it's gradual, which also makes it more difficult to perceive and to realise what's going on, because people constantly adjust to the so-called new normal. And to
0: bring this back to the overarching theme of our series, um, I think it's really important that we spend time thinking about the extent to which connectivity is a precondition for the scholarly response to COVID. The constant stream of information we have access to The fact there is now more high-quality coverage of this crisis coming out than one could consume even if it was a full-time activity. And to think about the kind of infrastructural and socio-political preconditions for a scholarly response. And I hope we can come back to this in one of our future discussions.
1: And also to keep in mind that although there is a lot of that, a lot of hot takes and maybe not so hot takes, Um, As someone mentioned on Twitter not long ago, you know, if all of these professors offering hot takes on social media would actually go and join a mutual aid group and try distributing uh, some things to people in need, it would probably do much more good. So maybe we could engage also with what is it, you know, what are other things that we can do? uh, Or what does theorizing prevent us from doing?
0: And we're going to debate that in future.